0: Alright, the church looks different from three feet over to the right. Never been over here, wow. <laughs> so before I start, let's just pray. Um, let's pray together. Dear Father, we just thank you, Lord, for today. God, I thank you for this opportunity that I have to share what you put on my heart and my mind this morning. Um, God, we pray for Pastor Mark as he's on vacation Uh, God, I pray that he uses this time to spend time with family and just to relax. Uh, Help them to come back refreshed. Father, I just pray, Lord, that as I speak, I don't go against your word. God, that you will guide my heart and my mind. Um, Father, I pray for the church that um, you can open up their ears to hear and that we won't be distracted by anything. So, Father, thank you that we get to worship together as brothers and sisters united by Christ, Lord, this morning. And in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So bear with me. This past week, me and Stephanie have both probably felt the worst we've felt in a while. Um, we're fighting off this cold, so if you see me kind of do this, I'm just muting my mic so that I can cough or clear my throat, and hopefully it won't be too distracting to hear. Uh, and I'm not going to lie, it's for me, I like having my guitar in front of me and speaking. It's, it's more comfortable. So I was almost thinking of grabbing my guitar and just speaking from over here, but I thought it'd be too weird. Um, I'm more comfortable behind my guitar than, than speaking. I like singing more than speaking, uh, which many people probably don't, they don't say that. So let's get started. I'm excited that, uh, again, I get to share what's been on my heart for the, the past couple of weeks of as I've been preparing this. So when it comes to relationships, there is a three-worded phrase that can strike fear into the manliest of men and it can make the most confident of women a little nervous. The phrase is not, I love you. It's not that. It's a a different phrase. And this phrase comes up a lot of times in newer relationships when you're just starting either a romantic relationship, a professional relationship, whether it's just a friendly relationship. And this phrase is, what are we? What are we? And again, it it seems to happen in newer relationships, and when you ask this question, what are we, you're really trying to figure out what is our relationship, you're trying to define the relationship, or if you're hip, you could say DTR, let's have a DTR talk, we need it. So I don't know if you know my story with Stephanie, I've shared it with the youth group countless times, they're probably sick of hearing it, so I'll share it with you guys this morning. We met at Camp Spofford up in New Hampshire uh, and we worked three consecutive summers in a row. The first summer I met Stephanie and I was like, all right, Uh, okay, all right, I I like her. And she had a boyfriend. So out of respect and I didn't want to be that guy, I kept my distance and we hung out as friends but with groups of people. Uh, I didn't try to, to lure her and to pursue her and steal her away. And after camp, it ended up she broke up with her boyfriend, which I was like, yes, hallelujah. Good things come to those who wait, and I was waiting. Um, <laughs> so the next summer, our second summer, we start hanging out, and this time it's more exclusively. We're by ourselves. We're, we're hanging out one-on-one, getting some food together, maybe just walking around camp, getting to know each other's faith and hearing our stories and at the end of summer, so that was in the beginning of summer, we were hanging out, going on these little dates. At the end of summer, I'll never forget it, I, I talked with Stephanie and I said, Stephanie, what are we? Usually, the, usually girls bring it up in their relationships, but this was me. I was like, Steph, what are we? And I asked her, I said, are we boyfriend and girlfriend? And she said, no. And I said, <laughs> okay. I said, I said, would you get mad at me if I hung out with a girl by myself? And she said, yes. And I was like, hmm, interesting, okay. And I said, well, I would get mad at you if you hung out with a boy by yourself. And she was like, yes. And I was like, what, what, are, what is going on? Are we, what, what, is, what is this? So after talking and having a DTR, defining a relationship, asking this question, uh, fast forward, I called her father, and they're here this morning, and I asked for his blessing to date his daughter. And now, ever since our DTR talk, our relationship has blossomed into this beautiful marriage that you see before you. (laughs) 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 So, when it comes to Jesus, I think we have a problem, or many people have a problem with their relationship with him. See, the Bible's clear that, we are to, uh, that we're commanded to follow Jesus and to be fully devoted to him. But if I'm being honest, I look around the world today and even youth groups and churches and those Facebook Christian friends that you have, and I'm just like, what's going on? Do they really have a relationship with Jesus? something is off from what I read and what Jesus tells me with how they're acting. So I want you to listen closely to these two verses and I'm actually not going to be talking, that's not the theme of my, of my message, but these are just two verses that Jesus says. So this is what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13. He says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only few find it. So Jesus is being clear that there's two paths. There's a wide one and it's, again, it's, it's a metaphor for heaven and hell. The wide path, the wide gate, leads to destruction, a.k.a. hell. The narrow path, the, the small gate, leads to life, which is heaven. And Jesus is clear that many, not some or few, but many enter towards the gates of hell. And only few find the gate and the path to heaven, And that's scary if you take a second and think about it. And Jesus says this further in the same chapter. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me you workers of lawlessness. Or one says, you workers of evil. So I love how Jesus is taking these top-tier actions, uh, casting out demons, doing mighty works, prophesying. I can say before you, I've never done any of that. So again, these are like top-tier acts that people are doing. And Jesus is saying, you're missing the whole point. It's not what you do, it's who you know. And more importantly, I have to know you. That's what Jesus says. I never knew you Depart from me, you workers of evilness. So relationships go both ways. Not only do we need to know Jesus, but Jesus needs to know us. And I think a lot of times we it's easy for us to know Jesus. We can know a lot of things about Jesus, all these facts. We can even believe that He is God and that He died and rose again. But the Bible says that's okay. Even the demons believe that. And the demons are not in heaven, unfortunately, if you didn't know that. So relationships go both ways. And I thought of a little example. Uh, for you Yan- Yankee fans, just sub- substitute the name Derek Jeter. I'll use David Wright. So let's just say, let's just say I'm like, oh yeah, me and David Wright, we get along. We're, we're best friends. I know everything about him. I know uh, again, when he started, I was at that game cheering for him. I've been to a couple games during the year cheering him on. And guess what? He even gave me his autograph. And yes, this is real. It's not. I didn't just make it up for the analogy. So it says, to David, best wishes, David Wright. Like he knows me. This is it. He wants me to have the best, the best wishes. Now, if I went up to David Wright and if I saw him in the middle of New York City and I was like, yo, David, how's it going, man? Like and I go up and give him a hug, he'll probably be like, what the heck is wrong with this person? I'll be like, hey man, when are you coming over for dinner? I got, come over today, what are you doing now? he would probably be like, dude, I don't even know you. So again, I can know all these things about David Wright or Jesus, but if they don't know about me, that's not a real relationship. It's a one-sided relationship. And these verses, the two verses I just read, it shows us this hard truth to grasp. That many people think they have a relationship with Jesus because they know him. They they know a lot about him. And maybe they do some good things. Maybe even better things than what Jesus said in that verse. But they don't have this intimate relationship with Jesus. So as we dive into our story this morning, uh, we're going to encounter two people in the story. And I hope that by reading this together, my goal is for you at the end of church is to have this DTR talk with Jesus, just you and Jesus. I don't need to get involved in it. It's not my place. But I want you to be asking Jesus, where are we or what are we? So if you have your Bible, let's turn to Luke chapter 7 and we'll start at verse 36. So Luke 7 verse 36. And before we read it, I just want to share a little bit of context, a context into what's been going on in the Bible Sometimes it's dangerous to just pick a verse and read it out of context. So it's important to know where we are. So Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. He gave a spiritual guidebook for Christians on how to live, how to be followers of Jesus. He told them about how not to judge people, how to pray for those who persecute you, how to love your enemy, the golden rule, do unto others as you have done to you. He also says, be my salt and light to the world. So Jesus is he's getting popular. He's starting to flex his divinity. Like he's showing the people his power and who he is and that he's God. Uh, Previously in chapter seven, uh, uh, we, we see Jesus encounters this centurion. And Jesus, the centurion comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, my servant is sick. Just say the word and I will believe that he will be healed. And Jesus is astonished by this guy's faith. And he says, go, your servant is healed. And the servant got healed. So Jesus had authority and power over sickness, and he didn't even need to to touch or see that person. So again, he's flexing a little bit of who he is, that he's God, his divinity. And what Jason read earlier, we see that he raises somebody from the dead. And this isn't just a one-time thing. He does it a couple times, and he actually does it himself. So he has this authority over sickness and authority over death. And he's gaining popularity. People are loving Jesus. So we're, we'll pick up at verse thirty-six, Luke 7, verse 36. And we see that the story is kind of broken up into three different sections. So I'm going to read a little bit, stop, read a little bit, stop, read a little bit, and then stop, and then we'll be finished. So uh, Luke 7, verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at that table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet... Would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. Simon replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, Say it, teacher. So we'll stop there. So in this story, we're introduced first to this Pharisee named Simon. And I think we need to know a little bit about Pharisees for this story to hopefully make s- some more sense. So Pharisees and Jesus, they butted heads on a lot of things. The Pharisees were these religious elite rulers. They had a little bit of power and they were very religious. They were very legalistic, which meant that they followed the law. And they would even, they had something called oral law that they passed down from, you know, their father passed down from their father, from their father. And so they followed Jesus' word, his authority, or, or God's authority. And they also had this oral tradition and they held it at the same level as the Bible. So they would kind of twist things into their favor. So they would say, you know, the Bible says to do this, but our tradition says to do this as well. So these people were very wise. They knew their Bible probably better than any of us, probably better than Pastor Mark, if I'm being honest. They studied the word, religiously, no pun intended. So... These Pharisees. My modern-day example I could think of this was if you're ever driving and you have someone in the passenger seat or the back seat, and they're kind of telling you what to do. They're saying, uh, "You know, David, you shouldn't have turned red there. There was a no uh, turn on red, you know, sign. You shouldn't have done that." Or, "Ooh, David, you, you got to stop at that stop sign for three seconds. No stutter stops. You got to stop, look left and right, and then you could go." Or maybe, "Ooh, you're going too fast. You got to slow down. The speed limit's 55. Don't go 57." You got to go 54 maybe. Play it safe. So the Pharisees were rule followers. They were all about the rules and they loved to be seen following the rules. They, they, they loved getting people to be like, wow, you know, they, they are good. I want to be like that Pharisee. So this, this Pharisee named Simon, he invites Jesus to a meal. And back then it was a social norm to have people watch you eat. So again, today I hate when I go and, you know, have food one-on-one because I'm like, don't watch me eat, please. I, I don't, don't. It's weird. But back then, they used to be a crowds of people and it was entertainment to watch people share a meal and you would hear the discussion going on. So Simon is doing this. People are watching Jesus and Simon have this meal. And my question, I thought to myself, is why is Simon even inviting Jesus to eat with him? The, the Pharisees and Jesus, they don't, they don't get along. You know, was it maybe, was he trying to trap Jesus? Was he trying to gain some religious merit, maybe piggyback off of Jesus' success? Was he trying to prove he was better than Jesus? Maybe he had this whole debate set up and he was going to school Jesus and make Jesus look like a fool. We don't know for sure. I'm just being honest. I'm not going to try to make something up. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we do know that Simon invited Jesus for a meal and it wasn't for the right reason. And we'll get to that a little bit later. So in verse 37, we're now introduced to our second character in the story. It says that she's a woman of the city, a sinner. And that's Bible language for saying she's a prostitute. And what that is, is she's a woman, she's selling her body to people for profit. That was her job, that was her profession. And back then and even today, prostitutes are seen as more as objects than people. uh, I, I listened to a sermon previously about This subject, and the guy said he interviewed, you know, he found a prostitute and interviewed them. I don't know how he did it, so I'm not going to say, I I have no clue. But he said that prostitutes, they they never feel love. There's this void. They're taken advantage of, and they have these ruined relationships in their life. So this woman, a prostitute, is seen at this dinner. And she has this flask of ointment or perfume. And uh, again, that's her livelihood in a sense. That's how she would attract men to her by having herself smell good. So that was a way that she would get business. And she's standing behind Jesus' feet. Back then, when you ate, there was short little tables and there were pillows all around and you would kind of lean on your side, on your your elbow. You wouldn't sit on a chair and be upright. You'd kind of be on your side. So she's standing behind Jesus' feet and we see that she wet his feet with her tears. She runs up to Jesus, interrupts the dinner, and wets his feet with her hair. She wipes them or what's it with her tears, wipes them with her hair. She kisses his feet and anoints them, pours her perfume at Jesus' feet. And my first thought is, oh, that's gross. If I'm being honest, like feet, back then, feet were even grosser than they were today. There weren't shoes, there were dirt roads, there were sandals, maybe, but feet were smelly, feet were dirty. But this woman is seen not caring. And she, she's seen interrupting this dinner in all her brokenness, and all her shame coming to Jesus. And I have a feeling she probably wasn't sniffling and, again, just kind of shedding some little tears here and there. I feel like she was kind of ugly crying. Like, if you have enough tears to wet somebody's feet, you're probably a mess. So, again, this picture, I just like to picture her just broken, nowhere else to go. And she's at the end of her rope, and she comes to Jesus. And my question is, why is she here? She doesn't, necessarily fit in with the crowd. People knew her. She was infamous, not famous, but infamous. We see that the Simon, the Pharisee, he knew who she was. And if he knew, I bet everybody else in that house or that courtyard knew who she was. And she was probably getting dirty looks. Maybe people were just keeping their distance a little bit, not wanting to be or associate with her. So we see this woman broken come to Jesus and my, th- and my thought is maybe she heard Jesus say something because it's clear that she must have known Jesus before coming to dinner. So maybe she heard Jesus say this, come to me all who are weary, all who are burdened, and I will give you rest. So she's longing for restoration. She's longing for forgiveness. And lastly in this section, the last couple of verses, we get an inside scoop into what Simon the Pharisee is thinking. He He's, he knows that this woman's a sinner. She's a prostitute. And he starts to question Jesus' authority. He says, he's looking, and he's like, he thinks to himself, hmm, if Jesus is really who he says he is and has this power, he would know that she's a sinner and that she's not worthy to be here. And how dare her interrupt my dinner? And he says that all to himself. And Jesus, I, I love Jesus. He always gets to the heart of what people are thinking. So the next section is now Jesus is talking to Simon, and he shares with Simon a little bit of a story. So we'll pick it up at verse 41, so Luke seven forty-one. This is Jesus talking to Simon. A creditor has two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, Jesus told him. So we'll stop there. A denary is simply a day's wage. So I did a little bit of math. I used a calculator. I'm not good at it. So I googled what the average salary of Suffolk County is, and according to Google, it was $85,000 a year, which made me a little bit depressed, and I was like, that's a lot of money. <laughs> okay, uh, so we'll round it down to eighty thousand. We'll round it down to eighty thousand just for some simple math. So you have two people. One that person owes five hundred denarii, and that equals one hundred and sixty thousand dollars in today's money. And then you have this other person who owes only fifty, and only sixteen thousand dollars only. So Jesus is telling Simon, there's there's two people who owe a debt. They're both forgiven. Know, who's going to love the person that forgave them more? And Simon gets the answer right. He says the person that owed more is going to be more gracious. He's going to be more loving. So Simon gets it right, but at this point, Jesus is trying to tell Simon and teach him a lesson and, and for Simon to connect the dots that, listen, this woman is the $160,000 debtor or person in debt, and you are still in debt. Even if you're only 16000 you are in debt to God and you both cannot pay it. But I don't think Simon really gets it. He's still thinking on a on a surface level type thing. And I think again Simon's heart was very judgmental. He sees this woman and his immediate thought is she's a sinner. How dare her be here? You know, if Jesus only knew who she was, she shouldn't even be here. Let's let's lock her up. Let's do this. And I think you know before at the end of the previous little section, Jesus says, "Simon, I have something to say to you." And I think Simon's kind of hoping and saying, all right, yes, Jesus, like, you know, where's your swift hammer of judgment? You know, this woman, she should not be here. Let's kick her out. Let's lock her up. You know, we don't like her. But instead, Jesus shares this story with Simon, and I still think Simon is missing the point. He's too much, uh, like, he's blinded by his own pride, by his own self-righteousness. So we'll pick up the very last part Of the story at verse 44. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet with her tears. She washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with Jesus began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace or peace of God be with you. So at this very last section, we see Simon's intentions for dinner, they weren't in the right spot. Back then, there were common protocols and it was pretty much common sense of how to have a guest and be very hospitable. And there's three different levels. The first is that if you had a guest enter your house, you would give them water to wash their feet because as we mentioned earlier, feet were dirty and you don't want to eat with dirty feet. That even rhymes. So at the bare minimum, you would give somebody water and they would wash their feet. If you were rich and had a servant, you'd command your servant, hey, go wash my guest's feet. And If they were a guest of honor, you would get down there and you would wash their feet for them. So we see that Simon doesn't do this. The next thing we see, and again another thing back then, is you would kiss and greet a guest. And that was usually with a kiss on each cheek. And I'm a little bit glad that we don't greet each other like that at church. Some of you might. Um, but again, it was just a common protocol, just out of respect. That was the greeting. It was almost like a handshake back then. And the last thing we see is that you would give your guest a scented olive oil or, or oil. And again, that would be to set the tone for the evening, that it would, would smell nice and it would just be an enjoyable time. So we see that Simon does none of these things. And these were the bare minimum of things that you should do. Hospitality back in Jesus' day was bigger than it is today. So for us, it's not really a big deal. But I'm thinking people around were probably thinking like, man, Simon didn't do anything for Jesus. Why is Jesus eating with dirty feet? Did he not wash his feet? Why does he not have oil for his head? Things like that. But we see that this woman who's a sinner, she does all of these things to Jesus's feet. And I think that's more humility to have that done to his feet rather than to his head. So we see two different people. You would think the Pharisee, who's someone who's very scholarly, someone who's respected, would act one way with Jesus, more respectable. But we see Simon did not do that. He didn't really care about Jesus, but this woman did. And I love that Jesus, he wasn't put off by her reputation. He knew she was a sinner. Jesus wasn't just like, oh, well, I, mm, thank you. I, I wish you wouldn't do it. But no, Jesus didn't mind. We don't see anywhere in here that Jesus was alarmed by what she'd done or disgusted by that. He wasn't affected by the gossip and probably the gasps of people all around to have somebody like her interrupt that dinner. And I love that Jesus knew that her heart was breaking. He knew that she was full of shame and full of remorse and that she wanted to change. And I think again when we look at Simon, Jesus starts off by saying, Simon, Do you see this woman? And I kind of picture Jesus being a little bit sassy and being like, hey, Simon, do you see this woman? Almost like get past your self-righteousness, your judgment. She is a sinner just like you. She is a person. She's a human being. Do you see her? She's more than just that sinner. She's more than just that prostitute. And we also see lastly that Jesus has authority over sin. And that's been the common theme, that he's starting to show people his power. At the end of the story, he forgives her sins. And it makes the Pharisees and the people all around the room a little bit anxious. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa who, who is this that he, that he can even forgive sins? Only God can do that. And again, Jesus is like, hello, I'm God. So again, we see Jesus' authority to forgive this woman's sin. And I think if we look at this story I want you to ask yourselves this question. Where do you find yourselves in your relationship with Jesus? And there's kind of three answers you can come up with. One, are you like the Pharisee? Or I should say, are we? This includes me. Are we like the Pharisees? Are we like the sinful woman? Or maybe you're not even in the story. So I guess number one, are we like the Pharisees? Are we very just morally upright? Do we view religion and Christianity as maybe a checklist of do's and don'ts? And what that might sound like is, oh, well, I went to church today. Check. I don't have to go to Bible study. I'm I'm good for about a week. I'll come back next week. Or, oh, I woke up five minutes early. Uh, I read my daily bread devotional. You know, check. I'm good. I don't have to do anything else with Jesus. That that's enough for the day. Check. Or, oh, I, I helped with trunk or treat last year. I don't need to help with anything else. But I'll, I'll help next year at trunk or treat again. Kind of check. I did my my servant my service. Or, oh, oh, I prayed for my food yesterday, so I'm, I think I'm good because, you know, I pray without ceasing, and my prayer never ends, so I blessed my food yesterday, and I don't really need to pray for it today. You know, check. And I think, you know, when you become or view your relationship as a checklist of do's or don'ts, it, you're getting robbed of intimacy. So I'll say it again. When, when relationships become like checklists, you're robbed of Intimacy. Maybe you're blinded by pride and self-righteousness. Maybe you're thinking, well, not as bad as my sister, not as bad as my brother or my parents or my friend. No, I'm okay. I, I, I come to church. I'm pretty good. At least I come here. And the problem with self-righteousness is that when Jesus died, you, you look at the cross and you're like, you know, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for dying, but I don't need it. You know, I'm okay. That's for other people. So you, you're robbing Jesus of what he's done and you're blinded by your own righteousness. Maybe kind of this is the last one. Maybe you follow and talk about Jesus only when it's convenient for you. Maybe you share your faith at school or at work and you get shut down immediately and you get made fun of and you're like, oh, all right, I'm never doing that again. I'm going to give up. Again, are you like the Pharisee? And I think the Pharisee's problem is they viewed Christianity, they, they viewed not as a relationship, but as a superficial religion. That they, they thought that God was more pleased by their actions, by the way that they did things, rather than knowing him and him knowing them. But we see that Jesus is not concerned about your actions or the things that you do. He's more concerned about your relationship and having, uh, again, knowing you and you knowing him. So are you like the Pharisee? Number two, are you like the sinful woman? And I hope we all strive to be like the sinful woman, not that I want you to be prostitutes. But are we deeply ashamed by our sin? Or is sin just something that you think, oh, I'll just pray for forgiveness tomorrow or, or later tonight, and I'll do it again. You know, as long as I pray after, I'm okay. No, Should we see that this woman is deeply ashamed. Again, she's, I just picture being uncontrollable, crying, tears coming down her face, coming to Jesus do you surrender everything to Jesus? So we see that this woman, she pours her perfume, which probably was very expensive. It probably cost her a lot of money. That was her life. That was her business model. She pours it at Jesus' feet. And I just looking at it symbolically, I just picture her, that's, she's laying her old self before Jesus. And she's becoming and striving and wanting to become a new creation. And we see at the end of the story, that Jesus forgives her. What she did was good. Jesus accepted and forgave her of her sin. So are we like the sinful woman? Or maybe we're not even in the story. Maybe you know you're a little thrown off by by being a follower of Jesus. Maybe you know a little bit about Christianity, but you're not sure. Again, my 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 big point here is that everybody sins. Let's let's face it. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. Pastor Mark's a sinner. You know, I'm not trying to undermine his authority, but we're all sinners. The Bible's clear that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's standard, which is being perfect. Our sin separated us from that perfect relationship with God. And again, it doesn't matter if you're that $16,000 sinner or the $160,000 sinner. I heard somebody say this, God will never love you any more or any less. His love for you is perfect. And that that stuck with me for the past couple of weeks. I just love that. It's that perfect description of his perfect love for us. And we see also in the Bible that our sin, the wages of sin, or what we deserve because of our sin is death. And it might sound a little bit harsh, but when we sin before an eternal, infinite, holy God, even if it's a little sin in your eyes, it's not your sin, but it's who you've sinned against. We're ultimately guilty of this eternal punishment in hell. And the verse goes, the wages of sin is death. But, it doesn't end there, it ends with hope. It says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our God. And my prayer and my hope, again, if you're not even in this story, is that one, you're loved. God loves you and he longs to have a relationship for you. Uh, We had a youth retreat a few months ago and I told the kids that Listen, Jesus, when he died on this cross, that was him in pursuit of you. Jesus took the first step towards you so that all you need to do is respond to it, accept to follow him, accept him as your Lord and your Savior, be fully devoted and be a a disciple, a follower of Jesus. So again, if if you're not in this story, my, my prayer is that you know that you're loved and that you have a Savior, you have Jesus who came to earth to die, he paid the debt. We've been forgiven. We are in that story as the person uh, who, who who forgave the debt. That's God. That's Jesus. He came to forgive us of what we've done. And I'll close with this, my, my final thought. And I, I love this little phrase: "Is God has a big eraser? God has a big eraser. He cleanses us of our sins." So we're going to close in a song, and it's, Oh, come to the altar. And the chorus of it goes like this. It simply says, Oh, come to the altar, or come to God, come to his presence. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It's not nothing that we can do. We can never be good enough for God. But the good news is we don't have to. Jesus did that for us. And we should be following and striving to become like Jesus so I'm going to pray, and, and I'll invite the worship of you, and I'll invite Stephanie to come back up, and we're going to close with this song together. So let's pray. Dear Father, God, we just thank you, Lord, for this morning. God, I just pray if there's anybody here this morning who's maybe not even in this story, God, I pray that you put it on their heart to want to just follow you. Maybe ask some questions. God, the invitation has been sent out. You sent your son Jesus to die for us and you're waiting for our response. So Father, I just pray again, if we're like the Pharisee, if we're blinded by our own self-righteousness, we can learn to live humbly. God, I pray that again, and we, uh, that even if we're like this sinner, that we continue to be fully devoted to you. God, help us to have this intimate relationship with you. God, I just pray and I just want to say thank you for sending Jesus again to come and pay the debt that we could never pay. Father, we love you, and in your name we pray. Amen.